I would like to uh, share with you this morning one of my favorite stories from the New Testament. It's found in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> and uh, if you have a New Testament, I would invite you to uh, turn to this uh, text and follow along with me. Luke chapter 14. It's uh, a passage that I love to uh, think about every time I... Uh, Approach it. I see something that uh, I've not I've not seen uh, before. It's that kind of kind of uh, kind of passage, pregnant uh, with uh, with meaning. Let's begin reading with verse one. It came about when Jesus went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him. Literally, he held him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day. And they could make no reply to this. Our Lord was uh, on his way into Jerusalem. The uh, immediate context is the chapter that precedes, verse 33. Jesus says to the apostles, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish Outside of Jerusalem, there's a, a sort of biting irony in those words. Jerusalem was a city that was infamous for killing off the prophets, for putting an end to, uh, to God's word. There are two converging lines in the Gospel of Luke. There's our Lord's determination to go to Jerusalem. It was Luke, you know, who reports that Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. The other line is the line of growing opposition, and the two converge about three to four months after this particular event in the crucifixion of our Lord. This particular incident took place in the fall or winter of A.D. 29. Our Lord was crucified in the spring of A.D. 30, so we're just a few months from the Passover. Our Lord was making his way through Perea in Transjordan modern-day Jordan, and uh, as he traveled through an unnamed village, he was invited out to lunch. This may be the uh, origin of the practice of inviting the preacher over for supper uh, on Sunday. This, however, was the Sabbath, the Jewish uh, Sabbath, which was Saturday. We're told that uh, the man who invited him was a leading Pharisee. That is, he was a very prominent Pharisee, uh, probably as distinguished as men like Hillel and Gamaliel and others that we know from this, uh, from this period, perhaps a member of the Sanhedrin. And the crowd invited to this party would be uh, likewise uh, distinguished legal scholars, theologians, Request was not made out of uh, a sincere desire to show hospitality to our Lord. It, it grew out of malice. As Luke tells us, they watched him closely. What they were trying to do is find some way to discredit him. 
There was a debate raging among the Pharisees uh, concerning Jesus' works on the Sabbath, whether his works constituted work or labor. And uh, they wanted to catch him doing something that was contrary to their tradition. The uh, Sabbath originally was set up for man, as Jesus uh, pointed out. It was designed to give man a break. Jesus uh, tells us that God worked for six days and he took off for a day. And men and women should do the same. That was the purpose of the Sabbath law. It was to give us a chance to uh, rest. But the uh, Jews of that day had surrounded the Sabbath uh, law with a whole labyrinth of tradition and and rules, man-made rules, that made the Sabbath difficult and onerous. And you're always likely to do something that would cause you to violate the Sabbath. When I was in school, I took a class in Talmud. The uh, Talmud is uh, a, a kind of uh, encyclopedic collection of all the, the rabbis' thinking. Uh, I was the only Gentile in the class, and I only lasted about three weeks, not because they were unkind to me, but because I was way over my head and uh, realized it almost immediately. But one of the things I learned uh, from that class is uh, the, the, the approach that the rabbis of this day had taken uh, to the Sabbath itself, the uh, the Jews described the the uh, the rabbis' interpretation as pilpel. The word basically means hair splitting. The rabbis could not agree, and uh, they often debated what constituted uh, Sabbath violation. Here's an example: uh, He is culpable, that is, he is guilty and worthy of judgment. That writes two letters. Now, Tom is not talking about correspondence. He's talking about letters, letters of the alphabet. Uh, The Talmud uh, indicates that if uh, you wrote two letters on the Sabbath, you were guilty of Sabbath breaking. Whether you write them with your right hand or with your left, whether the same or different letters, whether in different inks or in any language. Rabbi Jose said they, uh, pardon me, Joseph said they have declared culpable the writing of two letters only by reason of their use as a mark, for so used they to write on the boards of the tabernacle that they might know what adjoined which. Uh, In other words, when the tabernacle was constructed, uh, it was made portable so it could be taken down, it was put together with pegs, and so they would know which, which board joined which board, they would put a mark at the bottom, and that constituted labor originally. So if you wrote down two letters on the Sabbath, you were doing work. And uh, thus you violated the Sabbath. If during one act of forgetfulness a man wrote two letters, he is culpable whether he wrote in ink or caustic or red dye or gum, anything that leaves a lasting mark, or on two walls forming an angle, or on two tablets of an account book so that the two can be read together, he's culpable. If a man wrote on his skin, he is culpable, which would... uh, do away with uh, that ad on television where you scratch uh, dry on your skin. <laughs> if he scratched letters on his skin, Rabbi Eliezer declares him liable to a sin offering and so forth. You could write with liquids, which uh, would leave no lasting mark, but you couldn't write with anything that would leave an indelible imprint. But you could write with the back of your hand or with your foot or with your mouth or with your elbow. 
and so forth. Now, I'm not poking fun at their interpretation. I'm simply saying that uh, they had constructed this man-made set of traditions that made it almost impossible for anyone to keep the Sabbath. It prescribed how far you could throw out the dirty water from washing dishes. If it went too far, it, it constituted labor and so forth. And what they were trying to do is to catch our Lord in some act of Sabbath breaking so they could discredit him. Luke tells us that, that in the midst of this, uh, of this meal, some uninvited guest showed up. And the way Luke puts it indicates that, it, that everyone in the gathering was shocked and surprised. There, we're told, in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. Some interpreters uh, believe that this was a plant. This man was a plant. I'm more inclined to think that he just showed up. He was one of those uh, men described in the New Testament who would violate any convention to get to Jesus, man or woman. Jesus described certain people crashing the gates of heaven in order to get in. This is one of those. He was a person like this who crashed the party. He wanted he wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to talk to him. He had a need, a desperate need. And so he's willing to violate any set of rules, any conventions, any traditions in order to get next to Jesus. And all of a sudden he just shows up and, and he's anything but one of the beautiful people. And you just have to picture this man. He is suffering from edema, dropsy, as the text puts it. The old commentators describe this as the dropsical man. Now, dropsy is not uh, what we might think. It's not some partial paralysis that causes you to drop things. We all have that. Uh, the word dropsy is an old medical term that actually comes from the Greek word, who drops it costs, that uh, means uh, it has to do with fluids, the accumulation, the abnormal accumulation of fluids in the human body. And usually the problem is symptomatic of some deeper problem, cardiac uh, distress, renal failure, something like that. And uh, it creates swelling in the extremities. It's not, uh, it makes someone one very unattractive. Distended uh, limbs, hands, arms, legs, feet, sometimes the abdomen. As I say, this was anything other than one of the beautiful people. And you can imagine this man crashing the party. Here are all the distinguished men of Israel in their best bib and tucker. This was a lavish spread, and suddenly this man shows up. And uh, we're told that this became the occasion on which Jesus raised the question of healing on the Sabbath. As Luke puts it, he answered them. There was apparently no question, but there was an unanswered question in their mind. Will Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath? That's why some commentators believe this was a plant. They wanted this man was a plant. They wanted to see what he would what he would do. And so he anticipates the question. He asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or, uh, or not? They wanted to, to see what, uh, what he would do. And we have to understand by lawful, Jesus was referring not to Moses' law, not to Scripture, but to tradition. They uh, don't answer, and so Jesus acts. His actions actually answer the question that he raises. Luke tells us he, he held him. Here's this uh, grotesque, very ugly person. 
kind of person that most of us would shun. And, and our Lord hugged him, put his arms around him. I couldn't help but think when uh, the kids were up here signing and they, they did the sign for love. That's what our Lord did. He just gathered him in, held him. And he healed him. And we're so used to, uh, to reading these stories that we miss the drama. This was an instantaneous healing. It's not that he began to feel a little better and, and gradually the swelling in his extremities uh, began to go down. It was reduced. He, no, he was immediately healed. He, at one moment he looked at this swollen, uh, grotesque limb and the next minute his arm looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger's. This instantaneous healing, which indicates not only healing from the symptoms, but from the malady, the, the, the sickness, the internal problem that, that caused the, uh, the edema. These men went out healed, whole, and our Lord sent him away, probably to prevent further embarrassment. He'd been shunned, he'd been ostracized, he wasn't welcome. There was probably a little curling of the lip when he came in, and, and our Lord just wanted to spare him all of that, so he sent him away, sent him away. New man, new body. I've mentioned before these miracles are a speeded-up version of what God is doing all the time. One of these days, God is going to take these ugly old bodies of ours, and he's going to make them all new. We're all going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not your women. Here. <laughs> but... Uh, Paul says God's going to give us bodies like the glorious body of our Lord Jesus, whatever that means for male or female. I have no way of knowing. But Paul describes it as glorious. This is just a kind of truncated, shortened version of the same thing. Our Lord gave this man a new body and sent him out completely healed. And then he turned on the Pharisees. Turns his charm on the people and, uh, and on the host. He says, I, I, w- I want to tell you a parable. I've commented before uh, on the striking way that our Lord went about getting people's attention, how he shakes them mentally. He often was not direct at all. In fact, he rarely was direct. He was almost always indirect. He would say something that uh, made them think, and after a while, a bomb would go off in their mind, and they'd would realize what he was saying, kind of a delayed reaction that he wanted to, uh, that he wanted to generate. So he tells a story. Our word uh, parable is actually a transliteration of the Greek word for parable. It's not a, a translation as such. It's an anglicized form of the Greek word. We've just taken a Greek word and made an English word out of it. The Greek word comes from two words, balo, that means to throw, we got our word ballistic from it, to hurl or to throw. And para, we get our word parallel from that. Lines that are parallel, that are alongside. Para means alongside. So a parable is something thrown alongside. Now, this is the way our Lord used it. He'd get people thinking along one line, and then he'd throw them a curve alongside. He'd throw in a story that would subvert their minds. So... What our Lord did on this occasion is stump them. They had no answer to his question. And then he, he throws in a parable in order to, uh, to pull the rug right out from under their feet. 
Now let's listen to the parable. He, he began speaking to the invited guests. The uninvited guests had been sent out when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and, and say to you, give place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humble, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now keep in mind that Jesus calls this a parable. Uh, this is not another form of Emily Post. He's not, uh, he's not giving a lecture on manners or on etiquette. This is a parable about the kingdom of God. This is the way the citizens of the king of the kingdom, those who are subject to the king, ought to behave. This, this has to do with morality, not manners, with a lifestyle rather than the way we behave when we, uh, when we go to a party or when we throw one. And what he says, in just simple terms, is that we shouldn't seek prominence. Now, that's so contrary to our culture that it's very difficult for us to accept. This is uh, simply another instance where the Lord takes all of our traditional values and turns them upside down, red lines, all of our thinking about what really matters because we're taught to be aggressive and assertive and and to push and shove a little bit. You have to do it in a gracious way because that's all part of the procedure, but you just have to push and get yourself into the center and be recognized, and our Lord says, no, no. Don't seek prominence, seek obscurity. Go sit in the corner. When someone invites you to a party, don't seek out the high and mighty. Don't gravitate toward the rich and powerful. Go take a seat at the end of the table. Now, they reclined around a, around a table, a little low table about 18 inches high in Roman style. In our day, we would say, don't uh, gravitate toward the head table. Go sit at the rear of the room, the back of the room someplace until you're invited up to the front. So don't, don't put yourself in the center. Don't try to be recognized or noticed. Don't worry if you're not uh, consulted. Don't uh, get upset and angry if people don't notice your contribution, if they don't appreciate what you, what you do for others. Don't dominate meetings. Don't dominate your marriage. Don't uh, smart when you're not consulted or when someone doesn't ask your advice, when they overlook you, when you're unheralded unheralded and, and unknown and unrecognized. Don't seek to be in the center, but serve way out on the edge. And probably the, the greatest test of whether or not we have that attitude is when people do overlook us, when they don't recognize our, our contribution, when we get miffed and bent out of shape, when... People don't realize how much we're, we're doing for them or for the kingdom of God. That's some indication of the state of our, of our heart. He's, he's talking about a lifestyle of just staying out of the limelight. And the principle, as our, our Lord enunciates it, is verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. 
Our Lord must have liked that statement. He used it a number of times in different contexts. He must have meant it. What he's saying is that if we try to exalt ourselves, we will likely be humiliated. We'll be put down. But if we humble ourselves, all we risk is exaltation. The Lord sees our contribution. He's the householder. And in time, he'll say, come on up here. There's nothing wrong with uh, having a place of, of prestige and importance if God calls you up. But the point of this parable is don't seek it. Don't seek it. As Jeremiah puts it, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Seek them not. You see, it's totally backward from the way we, we think about life. If I don't push myself, who will? If I don't grab the chips off the table, somebody else is going to grab my chips. But what our Lord is saying, no, just let the Lord take care of you. If, if you're humbled, it's all right. If you're humiliated, it's all right. God's going to look after you. Don't seek the center. Now, having turned his charm on the guests, he now turns it on the host, the one who invited him. Verse 12, offends everyone in the room. He also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed or happy. It's the word for happiness, deep down satisfaction. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, associate with the lowly. It's interesting. In in these two parables, our Lord talks about seating arrangements and guest lists. And here the question is, who will I invite to my party when I throw it? Who will I invite? The rich and the famous? Those that dress properly, those that are highly educated, those that look right? Or will I invite the crippled, the poor, the lame, and the blind? Uh, Paul has a similar word in the book of Romans, chapter 12. He says, bless those who bless you, bless and curse not, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. In other words, be empathetic. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be a snob. Don't be wise in your own estimation. You see, it's pride that separates us from God and it separates us from one another. I think it was Winston Churchill who was talking about some uh, arrogant, inflexible colleague of his of whom he said, There, but for the grace of God goes God. And uh, that's very often our problem. We're just too big for our britches. We think too much of ourselves. The, our, our estimate of ourselves keeps us from, from loving those that we think are in the next echelon down. They're a little bit lower. They don't dress like we do. They haven't gone to the schools we've gone to. They don't live in the particular socioeconomic bracket that I live in. They're not my kind of people. They're, they're, they live across the tracks. And Jesus said, People are people, that's all. Just treat everyone the same. It's not that we have to cater to the poor any more than we should cater to the rich. It's that we don't cater to anyone. We just love them. 
Um, the the uh, children's nursery mind comes comes to mind. Hark, hark, the dogs do bark. The beggars are coming to town. Some in rags, some in tags. Some in velvet gown. So, you know, we're all beggars. I mean, let's face it, we're all beggars. Just looking for some place to get bread. Looking for a handout. And so Jesus points out that we ought to treat one another the same. Don't think too highly of yourself, as Paul puts it. But to think with humility, to love those that are poor and crippled and lame and blind and give yourself to them and you'll be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The reward doesn't come at the end of the party. It comes at the end of the age. These are the people that can't pay you back. Because often the poor and the wretched, the homeless, the helpless, the weak, the sick, the lame, the crippled, are sick emotionally, so sick they can't help you. That's why those, those of you that are involved in working with children, you, you, know, you know what it's like to, to work for years with children and never, never hear a word of thanks or appreciation. Those of you that are, that are doing a lot of counseling, women in the uh, counseling group now who spend a lot of your time with the crippled and the poor and, and the lame, perhaps not physically lame, but those that, emo- that are emotionally lame, there's not much reward in that. You may go for years without any response, but the reward doesn't come at the end of the counseling session. It doesn't come at the end of the party that you give. It comes at the end of the age. That's the promise. The Lord will see. It's the Lord who is the one who says, come up here. It's the Lord who will reward you in the resurrection of the righteous. And so we just keep on serving and giving ourselves to the crippled, the poor, the lame. As our Lord continued to elaborate on this theme, uh, one of the men at the table interrupted him, verse 15. When one of those who were reclining at table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. One of these uh, people who are right enough to be dangerously wrong. It is true that uh, those in the kingdom of heaven are, are blessed and happy. Those that have submitted to the sovereignty of of the king who are subservient to our Lord Jesus. Blessed is everyone who submits to his his lordship. But you see, what he was thinking is that he was in in the end crowd. One of these days he was going to sit down to eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the great ones of the the, uh, patriarchal era. And uh, he would take his place at at the head of the table was one of the pious, righteous ones. He had it made. And uh, Jesus corrects him gently, but nevertheless he corrects him. Verse 16, he said to him, A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent a slave to say to those who had, in, who had been invited, Come, for everything is, is ready now. In those days an invitation would be sent out sometimes weeks in advance of the dinner. They didn't operate on the basis of watches and calendars like we do. And they would sometimes uh, be unaware that the dinner was ready. And so at the last moment uh, a slave would be sent out through the city and he would knock on doors and he would uh, issue the final invitation. Come, come, the dinner is set, we're ready to eat. Come join us. And again, our Lord is speaking a parable. He's not talking about uh, dinner arrangements per se. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. 
the invitation to come to the great feast that the Lord wanted to serve had been issued hundreds of years before. And now the time had come, and so the Father sent out his slave, our Lord Jesus, to say, Come, come feast with me. And uh, he went through, ta- through the town making this invitation in verse 18. Uh, we're told that they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Man was either lying or he was a fool. No one would uh, buy a piece of property without looking at it. You might be buying an acre of swamp. But uh, in this case, the man probably was making an excuse, uh, just a simple excuse, and, and underneath it was an unwillingness to come. I just don't want to come because I've purchased this uh, piece of property. Uh, another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. That's like buying a car and not uh, kicking the tires and, and uh, opening the hood and looking at it and driving it around the block. And a third said, well, I, uh, I've just married myself a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. These are all people that feel that they have the resources necessary for life. They have what it takes to live life fully. They have possessions. They have a vocation. They have a love relationship going, so they don't need anything else. And one of the interesting things about this parable is that Jesus points out that all of these people are in the beginning stages of finding themselves in a vocation or finding themselves in possession, uh, in, in their possessions or, 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 or in a, a love relationship. And they haven't yet learned that these things don't satisfy. They haven't yet learned of their poverty. They haven't yet, yet learned that there's only one who can satisfy and that's our Lord Jesus. So they make excuses because they've got it made. They have a lot of land. They have money in the bank. Got a good investment program going. Just bought a Mercedes. Have a charming wife. Have a lovely home. They have it made. And uh, so they won't come. They don't realize how poor they, they really are. So uh, the slave came back, we're told, in verse 21. And he reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, All right, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Remember what our Lord taught us in the paragraph before? Those are the, exactly the kind of people that we ought to invite to our party. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, these are the people that God invites to his party because they know their need. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, They'll inherit the kingdom. They'll see God. So he says, go out in the streets and the lanes of the city and bring them in. And the slave said, Master, I've already done that. What you've commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out of the city, into the highways, along the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those people who were invited shall taste of, of my dinner. Do you understand what our Lord is saying? Those that are invited to his feast 
are those that, you know, the invitation goes out at large, but the, those who respond are the ones who recognize their need, their, their poverty of, of spirit. The kingdom of God is not filled with people who have it made. It's filled with people that can't make it, and they know it. They've tried. It has nothing to do with financial ability or your assets, your education, your personality, your background. Those things neither qualify you to get in, nor do they disqualify you if you have them. What our Lord is looking for is people who recognize how poor and needy they really are. Those who understand that they we're all just a bunch of beggars. We're all crippled up in various ways. We're all lame. We're all blind. We're all desperately sick. We have an internal disease that we can do nothing about. And when we recognize that, then we hear our Lord saying, Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's why the kingdom of God is full of a bunch of losers, like me and like you. Those are the people who qualify, those that can't make it. Now, that's one point that our Lord wanted to make out of this parable, but I think there's another. I think recognizing that we are crippled and lame and blind is what enables us to associate with the crippled and the blind and the lame, those that are on the outside, those that are so far out that no one cares anything about them. And and once we understand what we're like, then like our Lord, we can reach out to them and gather them in. We're not put off by their sin. We're not put off by their ignorance. We're not put off by their, their station in life. Our Lord's not saying that we should be preoccupied with caring for the poor. He's just saying that we ought to see everybody as poor and needy, not cater to any group, but to love them all and to reach out and accept them and draw them in because our Lord did. He took that grotesque, ugly man and he put his arms around him and he loved him. And once we see how ugly we are, we can love the ugliest of people. My uh, wife, Carolyn, has a little story that she loves to tell. I heard it, uh, first heard it from her years ago, about a little boy that went into a pet shop. And uh, he looked at all the, all the dogs and uh, had a hard time picking one out. And the pet owner showed him different animals and uh, took about an hour. Finally, he said to the owner, okay, I want that, that puppy back there in the corner. And there's a little puppy back in the shrinking up against uh, the wire mesh in the back of his cage. And, and the uh, owner of the pet store said, oh, you don't want him. He's crippled. And the little boy pulled up his jeans, and, and he had braces on his crooked little legs. And he said, that's the, exactly the kind of puppy I want because I'm crippled too. And you see, understanding how badly we're crippled enables us to love the cripples of the world. Red, yellow, black, white, poor, crippled, lame, blind. We're all precious in his sight. Let's pray. Lord, once more we come to the, one of these passages. And these words delight our heart. We, uh, we see ourselves for what we really are. And what it does, Lord, is strip away all the pretense and the hypocrisy and 
we begin to realize that we don't have to be anything more than we are. We don't have to put on airs. We don't have to try to be something that we're not. We don't have to force it or fake it. We can just be ourselves and know that we're loved and accepted by you. That you came to earth to put your arms around us and and to draw us in, regardless of our ugliness, the, the filthiness of our lives. It's Paul who reminds us that it's while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And we would ask that we would have the same heart toward others. We, you have to change us. We can't change our own hearts. We want to be like you in this respect. We, we want to see others as our brothers. We want to realize our own brokenness and crookedness and therefore not be put off by the brokenness of others. Help us to love them and to draw them in and to share with them the love that's transformed our lives. We so easily forget. We get into the world and the world begins to tell us again that what, what matters is being in the center and, and throwing our weight around and having things our way. And, and we know the result. We just lose out. We're humiliated in the end. It's just good to be reminded that we can can walk out into the world and we can we can sit in the corner and we can serve the lonely and the lost and we don't have to be prominent and eminent and distinguished and important in this world to be distinguished in your eyes. What a wonderful revelation of truth. How that transforms our thinking and gladdens our heart. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.